0: And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your co-host Slade Kemen, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This season of Club Book looks and sounds a little different than our previous seasons. Due to COVID-19, we are bringing seasons to you virtually instead of our traditional live events hosted in libraries around the Twin Cities metro. Our format will be a little different too. Events this season will consist of facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. And will also include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. With that, I'll turn it over to our host for this evening's event, enjoy.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Club Book with Rachel, Howzell, Paul. I am I am PJ Tracy, the author of the best-selling Monkey Run series, which is set in Minneapolis, and also of Deep into the Dark and the coming soon Desolation Canyon, the first two books in a new series set in Los Angeles. Before I introduce tonight's guest properly. Um, Give me a few moments to tell you a bit more about this unique series that's bringing rachel to us tonight club Book is a program of melsa the metropolitan library service agency made possible through minnesota's arts and cultural heritage fund and coordinated by library strategies part of the friends of the saint paul public library scott county library is also co-organizer of this evening's talk Thanks also to partnering bookseller Red Balloon Bookshop. Without further ado, our guest, Mystery Fina Rachel Housel Hall, is the pen behind the four volume Eloise Lou Norton series. Readers and critics laud Hall's intrepid and memorable lead as a strong and likable African American detective with few equals. And that is in the words of Lattery Journal. Her hometown of Los Angeles serves as the backdrop for the series, as well as most of her standalone work. These include recent book club favorite, Now She's Gone, which put Hall in contention for three of the genre's coveted accolades the Anthony, Barry, and Seamus Awards. Hall is also known for co authoring the page turning novella, The Good Sister, published in 2017 as part of James Patterson's best selling anthology, Family Lawyer. Her latest thriller, These Toxic Things, hit shelves a week ago. In this refreshing take on the serial killer theme, a young freelance artist unexpectedly comes into possession of a former client's Curios collection and soon discovers that these trinkets are not as innocuous as they first seemed. And boy, are they not innocuous! <laughs> Uh, after a short presentation by your guests and I believe Rachel is going to start us out by reading a passage we'll have time for audience Q and a. All you have to do is uh, drop your questions in the comments right here on Facebook and our fabulous tech manager will route them to me. If you would prefer to query a little more anonymously, you can also send a private message to club book here on Facebook or send an email to clubbookmn at gmail.com take it away rachel welcome
2: welcome i tried to keep myself off video because i was blushing the entire time (laughs) thank you so much for such a lovely introduction and for being here with me i wish i was there with you in minneapolis but you know these are the breaks right (laughs) um I'm very excited to share these toxic things with all of you. I'm so excited about this book. Um, It's about a young woman named Mickey Lambert, who is a digital archeologist, basically a a digital scrapbooker who helps to curate people's memories um, onto this new kind of tech device called a memory bank. And she is curating the memories of curio store owner, Nadia Denham, And that is the scene I'd like to share with you right now. At 11 o'clock on a rainy Thursday morning, there aren't many cars in the parking lot. The sandwich board at Beautiful Things sits in the breezeway outside the store. I grab my satchel, heavy now with my laptop, sketchbook, white archival gloves, and chargers. Umbrella up. I scan the parking lot for a stalker, but I glimpse only soggy RVs and an abandoned shopping cart. I'm alone, hopefully. As I cross the threshold into Beautiful Things, a bell over the storage front door tinkles. I stole my wet umbrella in the courtesy holder, then tuck strands of damp hair behind my ears. Animal scales and glass domes sit next to tarnished candelabra. Silver flask and yellow, yellowing globes are arranged beside totems and pocketbooks brass planters, stuffed ravens, cuff bracelets, framed maps, jute boxes, tea service collections. The kind of brass bell that a traveler taps at a hotel rests near the antique turquoise cash register. I tap the bell and the peal is as pure as it is loud. An open foam carton full of half chicken chicken wings and waffles sits on the stool. One moment, a woman's contralto calls out from a back room. Over by the jukebox near the entrance is a table dedicated to cough covered journals. A sucker for those, I pick up a cracked blue journal protected in plastic. I lift the cover. Says, I have a gift. My voice is beyond measure, but I lack judgment and I am not properly trained. That is a mid 19th century travel journal of a noted mezzo soprano from the New York Opera Company. This woman's voice belongs to a wrinkled face as pale as a fish's belly sharp blue eyes watch me from behind wire rimmed glasses. She wears a long blue pinafore and a white turtleneck. A ruby teardrop pendant hangs from a gold chain around her neck. She rakes her fingers through her short silver hair and smiles at me with cricket yellow teeth. 19th century, awesome. I return the book to its slot. Is Nadia Deniman? The woman cants her head. And you are? Michaela Dem- uh, Lambert. Digital archaeologist from the memory bank. Nadia hired. That's right. The woman claps and grins. I'm Nadia. Well, hello, Michaela Lambert. She holds out her arms. Welcome to beautiful things. I do a slow turn and say, He truly had a lot of memories. Good nature, she flaps her hands. I don't need to remember any of these things. What I want to remember is back in the office. First, though, let me give you the grand tour. She pivots and heads toward a collection of framed maps hanging beneath a row of Jesus-themed wall clocks. She touches one chart, and a brown octopus labeled Russia is surrounded by green China, yellow Turkey, and other lands denoted by Japanese calligraphy. One of my prizes, Nadia says, an anti-Russian satirical map made in 1906 during the Russo-Japanese War. She runs her finger along the caption. The store's very first collectible. I didn't acquire it. The original owner of the shop found it back in the late 70s. I bring out a pen and the sketch pad from my bag. Nadia blinks at my tools. Have I said something interesting? Maybe, I'm taking some notes for context. So the original owner? Nadia stares at the pad and shrugs. Sarah Park, a very nice South Korean woman. She opened the store in 1977, but she, well, something happened back in her home country a sick mother oh i can't remember the details now but sarah's spirit surrounds this place in some ways she never left in every way she's still here and oh look you'll like this over at a bookcase she pulls out a book with a faded red cover and a gold torchbearer on its front on the spine anna karenina leo tolstoy first modern library edition nadia says considered by some the greatest piece of literature ever She offers it to me, then watches as I gently flip through the pages of the story about a Russian socialite's torrid love affair. Have you read Anna Karenina? Excitement swirls through me like dust. Oh my goodness, yes, I took Russian lit in college. I love how authentic the relationships were the depiction of class, his writing. I lost my copy about two years ago and I gape at her. How did you come across this? It must be worth $800 up until a year ago. I'd take a month-long trip around the country. I'd visit flea markets, estate sales, stores like mine, and I'd shop that I'd find things no one else wanted, and I'd ship it all back. This book was in a dead man's garage sale bin somewhere in New Hampshire. I think he was a professor, but he didn't leave much money, so his family—well, here it is, and now it's yours, from me to you, to replace your lost copy. I shake my head and hold the book out for her to take. I can't. She smiles her butter teeth smile. Why not? I can't accept gifts worth more than $75, tax reasons. Bah, she says, then flaps her hands at me. The shine in your eyes, it's obvious there's love there. This book deserves that kind of love. You have a dollar? I pull a $5 bill from my wallet. Sold. Nadia plucks the money from my fingers and stuffs it into her pocket. I slip the book into my bag. Who does the collecting around the country now? The store manager. Nadia beckons me as she shuffles over to the collection of board games and aging boxes. Her name is Riley and she's a little firecracker. She's the one who bought, who thought we needed to sell postcards and whatnot. She'll be in later today or tomorrow. I pick up a Parcheesi box. Does she know that I'm working on my memory bank? Nadia, not. She's not thrilled about it. She holds up operation and smiles everyone's favorite it's not the project per se she's not thrilled about the reason behind the project. Which is if I don't if you don't mind me asking she says nothing for several seconds, then a sad smile spreads across her thin lips let's talk about why you're here. We move past the native American jewelry and embroidered pillows and into an office that resembles 1940s industrial America with its sleek clean lines chocolate wood and gunmetal. A large map of the United States hangs on the wall above the desk multicolored push pins crowd both the east and west coast, a few pins stick Louisiana and New Mexico. Nadia plops into the bankers desk chair, some of the pins match my special memories memories that i'm starting to forget it is really serendipitous i was flipping through the magazine that comes with the sunday times and there it was this contraction that banks your memories and then projects it into space and well it sounded like something out of star trek and i absolutely love star trek she wiggles her fingers anyway i've been trying to organize this special collection for years and failing miserably and then the way i was doing it she sticks out her tongue a complete mess I could never find the right words then I'd forget words saying them writing them Nadia removes her glasses rubs her eyes You see Michaela first I kept forgetting where I parked the car harmless everyone forgets that once or twice but then I keep asking Riley what time are you coming in and I get lost driving to the rose bowl every weekend even though I'd gone to that flea market forever a few times I had no idea where I was I was even lost in my store once and she slips her glasses on again then fumbles with the white medic alert bracelet on her wrist. A month, a tattoo of a heart and a pair of dice flashes beneath that bracelet a month ago I was diagnosed with alzheimer's I press my hand to my chest i'm so sorry. As you can imagine, for someone like me, someone who collects and sells antiques and memorabilia that diagnosis was absolutely devastating. The idea that one day I wouldn't remember the stories behind. She points to the pins on the map. Is that the project I asked, cataloging memories from those places on the map? Yes. She rolls her chair over to the project table near the window. Random things cover the long wood surface, a music box, a hairpin, a a pipe, torn sheets of note paper sit beneath each item. These 12 things mean the most to me, Nadia says. I want to remember them as long as I'm walking up rough ground. And I want the people who love me to have this too once I've left this world.
1: Thank you so much, Rachel. It's a wonderful passage and it was such a fabulous book. I just loved it. It was a real odyssey.
2: Thank you, thank you.
1: Now, um, first, I would like to ask you a few geeky author to author questions. uh (laughs) Um, uh The first thing is on your website, you mentioned the early influence of city sounds in your childhood and Mm -hmm. the need for answers. And it seems like the written word was a way for you to make sense of the world around you, and I really think that's true for a lot of authors. Can you tell me a little bit about your evolution um, from then until now to yeah. scrolling on church bulletins in your brother's yearbook <laughs> to like being a published and you know so well-regarded author?
2: Thank you. No, it I was like so many writers. I was a very quiet kid. Um I didn't like loud sounds um from uh, gunfire in my neighborhood. I grew up in um, South Los Angeles. Arguing, my parents arguing, to just chaos. It it made me very nervous, and I often took to books to escape from those sounds. I often took to writing in my diaries, which I kept writing in until uh, two years out of college, to make sense of what those sounds meant and what uh, the people behind those sounds were doing. Um, I never understood I was a very religious kid, and you know, religious kids were scared of hell. (laughs) And so I never understood. Well, why are people doing these bad things to each other? They'll go to hell for that. Exactly. (laughs) I don't understand and I didn't understand why just in general, people talk the way they did to each other and raise their voices and why do we hurt each other and books helped me figure things out. And when I couldn't figure them out, it helped me dip into those worlds. And so, you know, I wanted to tell my own stories. Um, I thought initially that I was gonna be in advertising. Well, first I thought I was gonna, I wanted to be a nun, even though we weren't Catholic. <laughs> I just like the habit. The habit was Oh great. yeah, it's very cool. <laughs> yeah, um, I liked, um, I wanted to be, join the Marines, again, the uniform. There's something about uniformity that has stuck with me. Um, it's it's
1: regimented it's
2: yes right right exactly um but then i figured you know i didn't want any of those things i just wanted to have some sense of order in my life and writing helped bring that and so you know my parents were used to me writing and reading and disappearing with books and words and they were cool with me saying you know i want to go to santa cruz and get a degree in you know reading Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because that's why I was I I don't add I like science, but you know you have to add to do science, you know, I, this was my strength, this was my love, I would you know read books for free, and so I went away and learned how to write. um, But I didn't learn how I I was I was too young to know what it was that I needed to write Um, I just knew. I wanted to tell stories. And I really didn't think that I could ever be a novelist. I thought my writing would come from my day job, going into advertising or publishing, because you know, we all want to go into publishing too when we're when we're young. Uh so it didn't it didn't click for me that I too could be a writer until my first real job um, at Penn Center USA West, which is a part of Penn American Center. And I saw and met working writers, including some of our genres, uh, big names, like, you know, Gary Phillips, who is just one of the most generous um, African-American writers, genre writers in the country, in the world. And I saw it, you know, when you see something, it's like, you know, I can be that. And I met him, and I met Paula Woods and BB Moore Campbell, who wrote these contemporary um, African American stories set in Los Angeles. I met all these incredible working writers, and that's when it's like, okay, I I can do this. So what is it that I want to write about? And that's when I started, you know, writing bad prose, as we all write our you know our 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 crappy little stories, <laughs> that you know we're trying we're we're trying to write those stories that we read and that we've read in college those stories that get people on the grant list of 30 under 30 you know the kind of mfa type i didn't have an mfa i was working toward it and i gave it up but those types of stories that may sound good but don't really have that much heart yeah Mm -hmm. and of course i couldn't i didn't land any editor or or an agent for that matter it wasn't until i witnessed a friend going through mental illness and just how that wrecked her family and how um, her son disappeared the one who was experiencing these problems that it's like i want to talk about this because i was a church kid and we didn't talk about mental illness you prayed things away and that was that you were either you know saved or not jesus did it or you're possessed you know it, it wasn't science that we were going after and so i wrote that story and i landed an agent and she sold it it was a quiet storm and it was published on the first anniversary of 9 11.
1: oh my gosh
2: yeah that was hard that was hard because you know my story about an african-american family in los angeles going going through mental illness was not you know a thing for you know a country that has just gone through a year of you know planes crashing through the World Trade Center. Um, so it took me a while, I, I did fine. I had a, a top publisher, I was with Scribner, and they tried, you know, they tried their, I won't say they tried their best, but they tried. Um, and it, I, I'm still trying to earn out on that book <laughs> years later. But, You know, I kept writing because I I loved it. And while A Quiet Storm was not a proper mystery, it was um, literary fiction slash psychological suspense, I liked that. I liked the mystery of someone disappearing or a body being found. I really liked that. And I kept writing even without, you know, my, my age and I, we eventually separated. I couldn't get a book deal, couldn't get a book deal, but I'm in my 30s now. And we all know that 30s is when you do a lot of living. It's when you finally grow up and your parents are starting to get old. You're starting to have a family You buy the house. All the the crazy big things of life happen in your 30s. And I was going through all of it, including some health issues. And it wasn't until um, I uh, I was diagnosed with a random breast cancer when I was 33 and pregnant with my daughter and you know we made it through she's healthy, but you know that that experience and continued experiences after that relating to my illness helped me. um, define what exactly it is that I wanted to write and what I needed to do before leaving the world. Um, And so I thought about what what is it and you know all this time when I'm not being published I was still writing and inching closer and closer and closer and and surrounding myself with crime fiction I was reading a lot of Michael Connelly and Walter Mosley had just come out with devil in a blue dress and Terry McMillan had come out with waiting to excel so there's all these things and you know we're we're book sluts so we're reading all of (laughs) it And the best best of us, we collect things from different writers that we love. And as I'm trying to figure out what type of book I want to write, um, I said to myself, well, I wanna write a story where it's um, waiting to excel with devil in a blue dress and smash them together. And I know that may not make sense, but that's what I want and I'm gonna do it. And so I started writing the story about this LAPD homicide detective named Eloise Norton, who patrols uh, my part of LA where I grew up. And she went to college with me and to my sorority sister. I know this person. And I called it Land of Shadows. And I went out with it. I was, you know, I was nervous, but I wasn't scared because I experienced real fear. And that was dealing with cancer and making sure that my daughter was healthy after all the operations i had while being pregnant so you know it, it was a fear because i wasn't a cop and here i am writing this procedural how dare i but then it's like well you know whatever i'm going to do it and if it sells that's awesome i just want one book just one book and i got a great agent jill marshall down in san diego who sold it to an incredible editor at forge um, kristen sevick and they, Krista loved it and bought another and then bought two more and then bought some more. And now here I am with these toxic things still, you know, still living life. You know, I, I've gone through my forties, I'm now 51. And the wonderful thing about growing older is, you know, you're writing becoming richer from all the the drama of, of living. And you just infuse that into, your words and so you know all these the young writers out there if you don't get it at first don't worry there's no expiration date and actually your your stuff becomes better the Mm -hmm. older you get so yeah Yeah. that's my that's my writing journey it's still not over um i have a daughter going to college and so i don't know what that means for me with one child and my husband and i discovering each other so i'm going to take that experience and i'm going to infuse that into my writing everything's everything's content (laughs) yeah
1: exactly well Uh that was an amazing journey thank you for sharing and yeah isn't writing it is catharsis
2: yes it is and therapy yeah
1: Richard totally (laughs) is therapy and you know i am so glad you followed your heart and your passion and i know there are tons of fans out there we're really glad you did too. And oh, by gosh. the way, I just love—I love Lou. Love she is the best. I, I just finished Luke. Land of Shadow. Well, you can—you can tell that you love her, and yeah. you love your characters. I mean, that really—if yeah. if, you know—so many times you read something, and it's like, does the author even care about their characters?
2: Yeah, no. It's uh, for me. It's very, very personal. Um, I get up. I still work a day job and I get up at 4:40 every morning to write my own stuff. I give myself the best words I always say. Um yeah. I do write for my day job, but I get up early so that I can get this in. And if I'm doing that and being a mom and a day job worker and you know, someone who's bustling around the city of Los Angeles, I have to care. Yeah. I have to care to write 90,000 words for every you know, every one of these stories. And You know i i i believe that i survived my cancer experience for many reasons including um being honest with what i'm writing about i Mm -hmm. you know i tried to be a hack once Mm -hmm. (laughs) it didn't work out and you know it's just goodness yeah and some people they can do that they have that gift my day job i ghostwrite and that's fine but Fortunately, I believe in what I do even then for my day job, I, I'm a writer at a large medical center out here in Los Angeles. And as someone who has benefited from great medicine and, and dedicated doctors, I believe in great science and, and meaningful patient care. So I even believe in that. So I want my life to have meaning and purpose. And that includes fiction. There lots of fiction. It doesn't really matter because you're making it up i may be making it up but the emotions that people feel when they're victimized when they're scared when they're anxious when they're excited i know what that means and i know the people that i'm writing for know what that means and so i'm writing for me like i said catharsis cheap therapy and i'm writing for readers out there who like me are looking for answers to something Um, and often stories are what help, they've always helped people make that bridge, make that make that connection to what they're going through in their life. That's why they're like 6000 CSI's.
1: Right. Uh, exactly. Well, you know, and it's, it's really interesting because it's a safe way to broach some of these things. Yeah, because it is fiction. But I mean, it's just so important to connect with the readers. Yeah, and, you know, I, I just I'm so happy to hear that because I think one of the most um rewarding things for me as a writer is is hearing from a fan or reader that you have touched them in some way that yeah. they understand they sympathize they empathize with the character or situation because they've been through it and you know it's, you know it's very you know powerful
2: yeah yeah no and it's it it's how we communicate yeah I, growing up as a religious kid i heard that you know it's a sin to write fiction But for me, Uh it's like, yeah, you're not supposed to write fiction because it's a lie. And for me, Jesus told parables. That's how he connected with some people. And I'm not, I'm not him, but I, that's what I believe. Fiction connects people with one another story will do that forever. And you may get to someone and have them listen by talking about Someone else in this far far land over here and get them to see what you're actually trying to say to them today in their contemporary world, so I love it and with crime fiction, fortunately and unfortunately. We have a lot of stories to tell you know mm-hmm. yeah or yeah. will forever since the beginning of time people have hurt each other and as writers, we try and figure out why and what we can do to survive that hurt so you know we're going to be busy a lot
1: yeah i know unfortunately we certainly are
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> rachel i've gotten a lot of questions about digital archaeology and and <laughs> that kind of wends into my my next question i want to ask mm-hmm. you just you know briefly can you tell us what your inspiration for these toxic things was it's so unique
2: well this is the first story that i haven't centered myself meaning you know, a fit, a, a gen Xer as the center of the story. Mm-hmm. It's actually my daughter and my, like my nieces generation, the gen Ys and the millennials. And part of the inspiration came from, you know, on your phone, sometimes you'll get a picture in Facebook or someone will, or something will say a, a year ago, right? this is yep. what you were. And, you know, while that's cool, I realized that, we don't print out pictures anymore not really i mean sometimes we do argent but my daughter all her memories are on the phone and that kind of troubles me there's something about you know holding a tchotchke holding memorabilia holding a photo album full of, of 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 pictures and you know that was kind of weird for me and so i thought about that and then i thought about um I was writing this during the pandemic. And this was a time when most of us are doing these home projects where we're cleaning things out. And so I was cleaning out a project and I found, you know, I can't even remember what it was, but it was a souvenir. And, you know, I I was talking to family about the souvenir and everyone had different memories about how the souvenir came to be and in a way that's kind of troubling too it's like it's cool because it's like oh we all have different connections to this but it's like well how do you remember this and how we remember things we may look upon something with great joy and and we're gleeful to see this again but someone else can see that same object and feel fear or anger um why didn't i inherit that train set why do you get to have grandma's brooch? You know, so, so all these things about real life and how we remember things, and how people are remembered by their things, swirled in my mind. And I wanted to put all that stuff in this whole new kind of tech world of memories being digitalized and uploaded and holographed. And yet they're still memories, no matter how they come at you or how they're captured they're still memories and they could either be toxic or they can be joyful. So right. that, that's Oh, the...
1: okay. Oh wow, that's 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 really interesting. Yeah, it was just it was such a refreshing, unique take. And it made me yeah. think about those things too, about like, oh my gosh, here's grandma's whatever on the piano yeah. and you know things like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, but I it's... thought a lot more about the stuff I surround myself with in my uh-huh.
2: home. Yeah, and we're all in in, in Michaela. I constructed her to be um, this Gen, this millennial Gen Y, whatever she is, which is a mixture of all the things from the boomer grandparents to the Gen X parents to the young people to, you know, analog and digital she is a collection of all these things and that's who she represents so many things to different people um she even you know she and she wears her mom's clothes all the time so in some ways she's a hand-me-down she's a tchotchke she's Mm -hmm. you know and she's an object so yeah Yeah. there are a lot of things that went into (laughs) this novel i i threw it all in
1: and well, yeah. I mean, you did. It was just fabulous. Um, I got, I'll ask one more of my own questions, then we'll probably get to some Q and A's from the audience because we have quite a few of them. Okay. But this is also a question that corresponds with um, another um, viewer's question that they wrote into us. Now, now, I'm you know as an author, obviously, I'm always fascinated with fellow writers' process because okay. you know we're all so different. And so I just kind of wanted you to um, give us a glimpse on your approach. And, and the, here's the reader question that is you know basically the same. Um, um, are you a plotter or a panster? Mm. Now, for those of you not familiar with panster, don't feel bad because <laughs> I had to Google it. I had no idea what it was. So anyhow, a panster is a writer who flies by the seat of their pants, kind of like me. But, um, what what are you? <laughs> or I, what am
2: an, I am an outliner. Remember, I'm going okay. to be a nun and a marine.
1: Oh, that's <laughs> right, of course. What am I thinking?
2: <laughs> so yeah, so I, I like order. I like knowing where I'm going. Um I do outline. Uh, part of that also is because having a day job, I want to be able to see progress and feel like I'm having some for some momentum. And right. so having an outline allows me to cross out things I'm the type I keep calendars in to do lists, they're all over and I like, and even if I don't have it on the list, I will write it and then cross it out because I like. Them. I so it. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so while I'm very regimented in some ways I do allow myself to follow inspiration so there's sometimes when you are writing something and. You know an idea strikes and you are like okay i'm gonna follow that and i'm i feel good with following whatever that is over there because i still have my map so i outline i i, I write my first drafts longhand. oh uh,
1: do you really i,
2: do, I wow. do it allows me to connect more with the characters and the story and i don't feel Whenever I see the little squiggly lines, the red line or the blue line or green line, but you know, on Word, I have a need to want to correct that. And so it's distracting. But with writing longhand, I get to cross out and it doesn't have to be neat. I can write yeah. in the margins and I can shove it in my purse and write somewhere else. I don't have to worry about the battery dying. Uh-huh. Um, I and I like the feel of good pens against a, a legal pad. I like yeah. that. Um, so yeah, it, it may take me a little longer for my day job. I have no problems like
1: oh, writing right. directly. It's a creative the... process. Connecting yeah. With... yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, but with my stories, I need, I need to take the, the scenic journey to get there.
1: That's wonderful. I love it. Okay. Yes. I just have one quick fluff question for you. Cause uh-huh. I love to get these and to answer them. Do you have any essential snacks or beverages when you're writing?
2: Um, in the mornings, I do have to have my Nescafe. <laughs> okay. And <laughs> <laughs> when I, when I still have it right here.
1: Um, oh, there you go. <laughs> I, I
2: get up, I feed the dog, I feed the two cats, I make my Nescafe, and I sit down and write until it's time for me to go to 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 go to work. Oh um, my God. But other than that, no. I oh. after this, you know, I will eat dinner and I will celebrate with popcorn with lots of butter and salt and wine and red wine
1: okay good girl <laughs> very good yeah. all right well let me get to some of the questions from our audience and mm-hmm. the first one you talked about a little bit but um she says is digital archaeology a real enterprise as a caregiver of someone with Alzheimer's, I was intrigued by the concept of an next gen digital scrapbook, which to hold value even without the flashy holographics.
2: Mm. Um, there was a moment where there was this organization this, this firm a uh, startup was trying to do something like that. And it, it died. I'm not sure I know it was sold off. I don't know where that organization that that, that company is. And I haven't heard anything since then. Um, um but you know Facebook and 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 iPhones they're trying to do something like that but nothing that I know of that's like this including you know the the narratives that go along with it that that came out of because you know I I look at pictures all the time it's like well what is the context of this yeah what what happened here and I wanted to I I wanted to um I don't know what's not necessarily show off. I wanted to try. It's like, can I do this? Can I write these little vignettes? I wanted to spread my wings and figure out if I could write these these vignettes. And so that's the idea. It's like, okay, yeah, she has a memory bank, but what's the story behind these things? Who are the people behind these things? Yeah, story. story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like I I want to do this gymnast trick. And so I, I did it.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's good. So there is a new job for you, Rachel.
2: Just what you need. Start your own digital archaeology company. I know, right? <laughs> exactly. awesome. but I, I hope. I hope something like this yeah. actually does take foot because, you know, especially for those who are dealing with neurodegenerative diseases, it's a wonderful thing. It's a it is. It's something great to have.
1: Yeah, it truly is. Mm-hmm. Now, our second question is two-part, but you answered the first already. Your first question was, is Binky Lambert based on anyone real? But we know you based on your daughter and your nieces and, and yeah. that generation. Mm-hmm. So our second is, I enjoy being in on her stream of consciousness style, inner thoughts. Do you generally find it harder to write from the perspective of a new, protagonist versus Detective Norton, who you've known for so long.
2: It was in some ways difficult for this story, yes, because she is younger, she's 24 years old. I haven't been 24, you know, in 600 years, (laughs) right, so I was like, well, what do they even think nowadays? Yeah. Who are these people and why is you know they're used to everything happening instantly i don't know what that means so you know to help me i did turn to my daughter and my nieces to you know from dating they date different now uh to what do you drink what are your cheap drinks we grew up with you know jack daniels down home punch and mickey's heart lemonade they drink white claws it's like well what yeah the right. white claw what is that that looks Weird. What's a seltzer? What's a seltzer? <laughs> Why do you need, can mm, I get a from a seltzer? So, yeah, um, it, that was difficult. But, you know, I I liked, and with all my standalones, I like jumping in the heads of different women because in some ways, I'm all of these women. Um, sure, yeah. I, I, I may not be as smart and strong as Lou, but I know I'm a survivor. And Lewis too, Miriam Macy, and they all fall down. Who deals with being, you know, a, a tiger mom in some ways. I have been in situations where I may not have killed somebody over my daughter, but I could see it. Yeah, you know, right. <laughs> I, I am each of these characters in some ways. I know this woman, and I want to reflect her. And so, you know, it may take, and that's one reason I um, write longhand too. I need to get to know these women, and it takes me several drafts for me to understand who she is. Mm-hmm. You know, my my when I give my initial synopses to my agent, she's like, "Well, who is she?" Like, I have no idea. I don't know who <laughs> you don't know yet. <laughs> it takes me it takes me about two drafts to it's like, okay, she is you know an INTJ personality on the. Briggs Myers personality mm-hmm. skills. She likes this thing, she likes that, but I don't know these things initially. And you know this, when you're writing a situation, you don't know what a character's gonna do until they do it. And either you're like, mm, that's authentic or mm, she wouldn't do that. Right. It, it takes you to get to that point in your yeah. process. Yeah.
1: Yeah, very interesting. All right. Okay, here's a good one that I would like to know too how do you juggle your writing career and day job at the hospitals oh my gosh it's <laughs> exhausting. It's That's exhausting. Not at
2: all. oh my gosh but first first um i am i am while sometimes it can be a drag to have a day job because what i love is writing these stories i must say that i am grateful to have jobs that do have a lot of meaning i've been Um, A science, a fundraising writer for uh, medical science since 2008, and even before then, I was a fundraiser at the ACLU and I worked at the UCLA, and so I've been able to have jobs that have meaning. So while it sucks sometimes that I don't have the time that I'd like. I feel good that i'm using my talents for the a, a bigger thing a better cause, and i'm getting paid you know i'm getting paid to to write and to save and improve lives so. That is important to me um, so that helps when I can't get to the writing that I want to do, and so I get up early in the mornings, especially now to do it, I, I get up. Um, I write from 4.45 after I get my (laughs) Nescafe. And then I write to about seven o'clock and I return emails and do all that kind of like administrative part of writing. And then I go to work. I work from about 7.45 to three. Um, I do, if I have an idea for um, a scene or breakthrough, I use post-it notes and scratch paper and I capture it there. Back mm-hmm. in the wonderful days of commuting and I say wonderful days of commuting because that liminal space between your destination and, and, and where you just came from, I use that to think about my story. I use that to listen to true crime podcasts mm-hmm. because listening to other people's stories inspires you. Mm-hmm. Um, I miss that. I miss those times in the car where I can just kind of think. And so I have to find other ways to do that. Um, I enjoy going to cars, getting my car serviced, uh, <laughs> doctor's appointment, anytime that I can be in the car and just think I take advantage of that because yeah. by the time I get back to my desk, I've figured something out. So if when I wake up the next morning, I'm already you know ready to write. I do write every day and mm-hmm. this may yeah. not be right for everyone, but. I do write every day because for me, who I I write such personal things and I use my own experience to to, build out this world. Things happen to me every day. I've learned something or I've experienced something, something new has made me mad, something new has made me happy. Mm -hmm. And I wanna be sure that I am at my desk, ready to incorporate that into whatever scene that I'm working on. And if I skip days, then that magic, that 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 alchemy is gone. Mm-hmm. I don't want it to go because my time, I don't get a lot of it. I'm working mm-hmm. and soccer practice and like sleeping. Yeah, so it's I know, right? <laughs> Those things, taking a shower. <laughs> so I wanna be sure that I can, the, the wizardry keeps, <laughs> keeps going every yeah. day yeah it might not be good words but it's something
1: but it's words and it keeps you connected to the process and your character i write every day 365 how whatever and i do it because i love it and i I feel sad a day when i don't write i feel sad so even if i have stuff going on all day and get home at midnight i'll write for an hour so i'm not sad
2: (laughs) no the only time i do not write like not even pick up a pen is uh, vacation. I yeah. do allow myself a week of true vacation when I'm doing a lot of reading. I yeah. We actually went on real vacation this past July. And I read like three books and it was glorious. It was recharging. Yep. And I'm okay. I'm not sad because I know that it's waiting for me. And right.
1: And you know, you're still doing work by reading because that's part of our job, exactly.
2: right? Exactly. Your <laughs> mind is still working, right? It's
1: still well, you can't show it up. That I mean no, can sleep. I mean, I dream, I saw things in my sleep sometimes
2: not yeah. often but you know you do and we're like squirrels and we save that yeah, right. exactly we yeah, are like yeah.
1: squirrels <laughs> we're hilarious. squirrels
2: and vampires, vampires and squirrels.
1: <laughs> yes right that's us <laughs> okay here is another question um and we have had had a couple questions similar to this um i know that rachel has overcome a number of adversities here where she is today, as a pre-published writer of color I'd like to hear candid experiences as a breakout BIPOC author in a genre that is traditionally pretty white.
2: It has been a challenge. You are correct about that. Um, Before uh, these wonderful things started happening to me, I, you know, like I mentioned, I've been trying to be published again since 2003, and my next book deal didn't come into 2014 and in between that i'm writing and i'm submitting these stories and there are some editors and agents who are like well your voice isn't black enough or oh. i have one of those already oh, you know geez. and that was heartbreaking it was a that's, heart- heartbreaking that's, that's really hard yeah to say that my voice isn't black enough is it why? why you you know no and one's talking you well
1: you're not white right enough way.
2: yeah i know it's just i awesome. didn't understand it and in between this rejection you know i'm going through this whole cancer thing so there were times where i just wanted to give up and i didn't know what else i could do though that was the awful thing it's like well if i stop writing then what what i i like words i like writing and i you know i that's when i tried to be a hack and tried to write you know the whole urban gritty fiction thing that they were buying back then but that wasn't me. That wasn't my experience. My experience was a West Coast African-American Gen Xer. Uh-huh. And that wasn't the flavor of the month, but I kept going and I kept writing and I kept reading those stories that um, appealed to me, uh, both, you know, writers of color, their stories, but also those stories written by white authors who I wanted to emulate. Michael Connolly, George Pelicanos, Dennis Lehane, um I read those stories it's like well what are they doing that I can't do and I I I read them and broke them down forensically Mm -hmm. try and figure that out and I at this time um Amazon just came out with the Kindle self-publishing platform and two of those stories that I had hoped to publish to get an agent for and to publish they didn't I didn't land representation and I didn't sell them to anyone. And so I uploaded those two stories, The View From Here and No One Knows You Here onto Kindle. And one, it was cool because I felt that these stories could find some readers. Uh Two, I got a little money for it. And three, it helped me figure out that, yeah, this is what I want to do. These Uh are the stories I want to write. And I had to write all these bad stories to get to the good ones, because my second novel, the novel that I tried to sell in 2003 and was told that my voice wasn't black enough, that story was uh, the the story of the domestic abuse story in And Now She's Gone. And Now She's Gone is a story of a PI who is looking for a missing woman who doesn't wanna be found. Nestled within that story is a story of a woman named Natalie Dixon who has disappeared from an abusive marriage. And that abusive marriage story was that story back in 2003. Uh-huh. So even though I didn't sell it then, little did I know that it would become useful for me in 2020 when it came out and was nominated for a Los Angeles Times book award. Pretty so rough. I would say to you, um, question submitter to just keep going, to. Um, brush off the whole, you're not fitting in this box, because who gives a damn what your box is? This is what you want to write. That doesn't mean you can write crappy things. No, write your best, learn, listen, go to conferences, um, check out Sisters in Crime if you're a a genre writer and, and Mystery Writers of America and all these other great organizations, and take advantage of those conferences and those awards and the tutoring, all that, and write your story, write the best story you can, the most authentic and meaningful story that you have. And then, you know, just keep trying. And if it doesn't sell, keep it, because 10 years from now, it may be that story that you didn't know how to write back then that can now be an award winner.
1: That's absolutely, that's so true. You know, it's part of the process of finding yourself. Finding your voice. And I think when people finally have that aha moment, it's because it is genuine, it's authentic, you know, and it's coming from here and not from here or not from somebody saying fit into that box.
2: Right. Here is a dangerous place. This is here. (laughs) It's a a wonderful place because things happen there. Our stories actually, you know, we have to use our, but here, that's where the heart of the story comes Yep. Out. That's and it. And you can
1: tell when the heart is in there and you can tell yeah. when the heart is not. Definitely. Yeah. 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 Very good. Well, thank you so much. Um, oh, and here's a good one for you. I have to ask, what was it like to work with James Patterson's publishing team? How did that collaboration come about? The Good Sister is how I first learned of you.
2: Oh, wow. Oh, that's cool to hear. Oh, that was. One of those like shots from the sky. So I was at work and it was a Friday afternoon around four o'clock. And we all know how we feel at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon. Yes. Exhausted. We're done. I was done for the day. And my wonderful agent Jill, she calls me and she's like, so James Patterson's editor um reached out to me just now. So he's read. You know, land of shadows, and he really liked it. And he doesn't have any LA stories. And he was wondering if you were interested in writing a story with him. And I'm first of all, I'm like, what? That's the, the writer part of me. The day jobber in me who was like exhausted because it's Friday at four. I'm like, I need to think about it. <laughs> I had to think about it. It didn't take long. We went out to um for tacos and margaritas. And my husband's like, for real? I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm gonna do it. Of course I'm gonna do it. <laughs> I just needed a drink. It was four o'clock in the yeah. So I immediately, you know, I after after the margaritas and the tacos, I, I reached out to Jill. I was like, I would love to. Yeah. <laughs> and it was an incredible experience. I learned so much, uh, all the whole getting out of the chapter early, the whole page turning thing, cliffhanger thing, I learned from him. It was difficult for me, you know, as novelists, we like the sprawl of the novel, the taking your time and describing everything. And he's like, no,
1: you need to
2: get in, get out 30,000 words. I'm like, how do you do that? 30,000 words. 30,000 words. And it's like, but, but I need to describe the color of her eyes. And All the scenery, I no cut all that. It needs to pop. And so, we worked ten thousand words at a time. And I would submit my outline, and too much, he cross it out. I submit my chapters, no too much. And I learned how to write quickly, in and out of the scenes, make it make make them turn the pages. And that that is an incredible gift, you know. It was. It was wonderful me for me because it was, you know, a wonderful distraction, because on the day that I needed to turn in my last 30,000 words I was going into surgery for oh my
1: gosh wow, cancer
2: right related sickness I needed surgery and i'm in bed 4 40 in the morning writing this James Patterson story before I go off to St john's wow. for the surgery so once again, you know I if if I didn't wake up from surgery, because, you know, surgery's always, always weird, yes. I knew yeah. that I just turned in this story to one of the greatest thriller writers in the history of thriller writing. And I was fine with that. It was a blessing to work with him. And obviously, you know, the person who asked this question found me through yeah through right so,
1: exactly so, so uncle, uncle james,
2: james is always <laughs> <laughs> that's fabulous I'm, uh, thank, Rachel, you, I'm, thank you
1: i am so sad but we probably only have time for one more question this is so much fun you can stay here for hours
2: yeah Give some really wine margaritas
1: tacos will be here all night
2: <laughs> exactly right
1: <laughs> all right okay uh, this is a second uh few people have asked this question. Mm-hmm. Um, if, you have, if you have an opportunity to collaborate on a project with another author, um, who would you like to work with next?
2: I would love to work with, and I could probably help make this happen, I'll uh, work with Kelly Garrett. She is a young uh, crime writer, K-E-L-L-Y-E, who came out with a series uh, featuring uh, an amateur sleuth. And she has such a great sense of humor and her next book comes out next spring, Like a Sister. And I love her voice. Oh. I like her humor. She's uh, an East Coast writer. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, ooh, East Coast, West Coast. She's younger than I am. Mm-hmm. I'm older. Yeah. It would be so cool to have like these two, you know, Black sleuth women, you know, trying to figure out some shenanigans somewhere. So- Right, I like also love- even. <laughs> Yeah, I would love to work and I I, I'm trying to figure out what it what that project would be. But I was actually I was thinking about that. So you may see uh, Rachel Housel Hall, Kelly Garrett combo platter, you know, in in the future.
1: Sounds (laughs) fabulous. Well, Rachel, I hate to let you go, but we are out of time. I know we're out of time, but thank you so much for penciling us into your busy schedule and all the best to you and good luck with these toxic things.
2: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Club Book. Thank you for moderating, Tracy. Thank you, everyone, for for taking time out to listen to us talk about words. Yeah, it was
1: great, (laughs) awesome. Thanks, Rachel.
0: That wraps up our Scott County Library event with Rachel Housel Hall. Make sure to catch our next Club Book Podcast with Angeline Booley. Angeline Bully is the number one New York Times bestselling author of Firekeeper's Daughter. Described by the author as an indigenous Nancy Drew, Booley's YA debut draws heavily from her own Ojibwe upbringing. It is soon to be adapted for Netflix by the production company of Barack and Michelle Obama. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons. Sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.